Hey everybody, Dan here. A uh, quick word of warning before we started the episode. So, uh, Zoom was a naughty little beastie uh, last Monday night and uh, cut out a couple times, froze up on us. So, uh, there might be a couple points where the conversation doesn't feel like it flows quite naturally. Uh, we did our best. Enjoy! WMQA! Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. I'm Matt Laswitz. And uh, this week we're talking to a longtime Deadpool artist and the creator of the new Boom Studios graphic memoir, Happiness Will Follow, Mike Hawthorne. Uh, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Nice to be here. Yeah. So uh, I'll start with the usual icebreaker question for new guests. Uh, what comics do you remember reading when you first got into the medium? Oh, boy. Um, so I got introduced to comics by a, a godbrother. Uh, and... I didn't know how weird his tastes were. So he would like, he introduced me to comics like uh, the original uh, Judge Dredd comics and some weird black and white stuff. Um, the old Conan, those illustrated magazine things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I sort of thought that that was what comics normally look like, that they were often black and white. Like <laughs> that. Uh, so I didn't really discover like mainstream comics in the true sense like marvel dc that kind of thing mm -hmm. so years later and I, I sort of grew up reading uh a weird mix of like the uncanny x-men mm -hmm. and then uh oddball things like uh there, there was a, a comic i used to love as a kid called warlock five it's, nobody has ever heard of it <laughs> it was like this like black i thought it was super cool because it was um it was like all black and white and it used the airbrush and i just thought like i'd grown up with with graffiti and I thought man that's the coolest look for a book ever so I was lucky in that regard and he would just he was one of those guys that would read the comics and trash them so he didn't care if you you know went through the stack and just kept everything um I guess he just wasn't into collecting so I got to I got to go get some cool stuff early on that, that's awesome I, yeah. I like that you kind of yeah. graduated right to the advanced class with like dread yeah. and black you know black and yeah white without stuff. knowing it <laughs> without plan it, it was a weird I recognize now that it, it, it affected my taste going forward forever. I mean, I'm known now for all the superhero stuff, but the first 10 years of my career, I didn't really do any superhero stuff because I kind of thought that would be normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it came from that, that weird introduction to comics, you know? I mean, it, just jumping to a question that we had planned for further on, but you just kind of gave us the cue there. Your first yeah. professional credit was... Um, with Matt Wagner on uh, Grendel. Uh, how'd you get hooked up with Matt Wagner? Cause I mean, those Hunter Rose books are yeah. some of my favorite comics and Hunter Rose is like top 10 comic book characters of all time. Yeah, me. dude. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Matt, Matt is my personal champion. The guy's amazing. Like I didn't really know anyone in comics. And uh, when I was in comp in art school, rather, uh, I had this illustration professor named David Noyes, and this was in a Philly area. Mm -hmm. Matt was kind of a Philly guy, and it turned out we had uh, the same professor, but like 15 years apart. So Dave uh, sort of told me about Matt, and I uh, happened to be uh, working with this writer guy at the art school who had in his head that we could like pitch Matt a Grendel series. <laughs> um, and we were complete nobodies, but we just thought like, what the hell? And, and uh, he was coming to Philly and we went and talked to him. And of course he wasn't going to let us do the book, but he, he was very friendly. And uh, 
years later, I ended up self-publishing a book called Hysteria. So there was a book before mm-hmm. uh, Grendel. And I had always been keeping in touch with Matt and sending him comics and just, he'd always been very cool. Um, and that's when he gave me my, my big break. He and uh, Diana Schutz at, uh, at Dark Horse. And I, I like, I was beside myself. Like I didn't know, I mean, I knew that this was like a super iconic character, um, but I, I didn't know that like how, how pivotal this particular thing would be. Like there, there's, I mean, if I look back at those pages, and it's sort of there's a lot of the stuff that I sort of use even today for the more comic book, or rather the more superhero style stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all came from like him kind of art directing me. Like I would I would do these pages. I remember um, he didn't really script out the action scene. He just sort of said, "Hey, there's this chase scene on a motorcycle for X amount of pages," and I would send him layouts and pencils, and I would do everything like moment to moment, like it was a storyboard. And Matt sort of gave me this like crash course on like, hey, this is how you make comics. You don't have to show every stupid second of the, of the scene. <laughs> um, so the dude was not only giving me my big break, but he was sort of teaching me how to make some like action comics or superhero comics. And uh, without he and Diana, like, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure I would have eventually gotten a gig, but um, they they sort of supercharged my career early on. I mean, th- it's a business where like you you don't really get a gig until you've already had a gig, right? Yeah. So that first one is always super pivotal and you hope that someone will give you a break. And I was lucky in that, you know, lots of people get a big break, but mine was, was cool in that like Matt was more of a teacher than just like my, my boss on a, on a job. So I love the guy to death. I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's still got it. I don't know if you've seen the stuff he's been posting. He's like, he's amazing. Love that guy. I can't wait for the next issue of Devil's Odyssey to come out whenever yeah, it it hits. Yeah, dude, he he's I mean, he's one of those guys that like I would probably, you know, drop everything to work with again if I had if I, you know, obviously wasn't locked into an exclusive with Marvel, but um <laughs> yeah, he it's just he just has a great sense of story and and like drama and and design. I mean, that that character we sort of take it for granted how cool it looks, but like it was unique at the time, that weird fork thing. I mean, it was like, it was just a cool, and having the, 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 I mean, he's essentially a villain and you just, he's doing all this horrible stuff, <laughs> but you can't help but love him. I mean, it's just, a, it's just, a, it was ahead of its time, I think, you know? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but we are here to talk about uh, Happiness Will Follow, which okay. uh, tells the, the story of you know, growing up, your relationship with your mother. Uh, you know, it's this incredibly personal story. Um, when and how did you decide that you wanted to share it? I, I did not. I did not want to share it. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it's, it's a weird, it's, there's a very convoluted uh, story behind it, but um, when I originally uh, got, I was asked to do the book mm-hmm. and I was working at Vertigo at the time on a book called The Unmen. And at the time, uh, Vertigo was like the place to be, right? Like, you know, 100 Bullets was still huge. Um, I think when I was on Unmen, I think Scalped was just starting. Like there was this, Air was there. Like there's a couple of these yep. like books that eventually these people went on to be rock stars in comics. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it was just like the place to be and everybody wanted to write or draw a vertigo book. And I was lucky enough to be there. And I was in uh, Manhattan on a, for a bookstore signing. And afterwards we went out to dinner and we were talking, my editor, John Vankin at the time, uh, was talking about the brief and wondrous life of Oscar Wilde, which had just won, I think it had just won the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's by a Dominican writer named Juno Diaz. Yeah. And I said, you know, hey, that, that happened to me. Like somebody put a curse on me when I was a kid. And John's eyes like bugged out from across the table and he demanded I tell him the story. Mm-hmm. So I did. And he's like hanging on every word. I'm like, I just thought it was just dinner conversation. Right. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was pitching a book by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at the end of the conversation, he says, listen, if you want to write that book, I want to publish it. And I did not want to write the book. Um, but when Vertigo asked, you, I mean, Vertigo never asked you to do a book. Like they were, they were the people that everybody was like throwing pitches at sure. and, and praying that something would happen. And here I was in a position where they're saying, Hey, write us a book. So I thought, well, I can't say no because it's Vertigo. Um, <clears throat> so I'll say yes and use it as a, an in to mm-hmm. maybe like pitch a, 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 a series of my own, or maybe even take hysteria there or something. And, uh, so we worked on a book together and it took us about a year and some change to write the thing. I, I must've written, I think in total, we ended up with like six drafts before the current incarnation. Uh, so we're up to prob- probably seven. And, uh, at the time, nobody knew what was going on, but like the new 52 stuff was brewing mm-hmm. and, you know, vertigo was on the rocks uh, and none of us knew that. So <clears throat> the graphic novel, imp- actually first uh, John was unfortunately fired after I'd finished the artwork for the book. Mm. And uh, the plan was to release it. Uh, I think the line, it was going to be a line of graphic novels. And I think mine would have been the second. I think the first one was um, uh, by Dean Haspiel, Dino you know, did a book with yeah. my mother-in-law yeah you remember this thing yeah i remember the like i worked at a comic shop for a real long time i remember yeah. that book and i i can't remember the title but i know the book i don't remember about. the title but it was about i think his mother-in-law who was a uh, uh she was she's cuban and escaped uh fidel's you know revolution and it was a great story and i think mine was going to be the next one and if the, the only one to make it out of the, out of the gate was dino's book and so I was sort of sitting around waiting, like what's going to happen with this book. I actually sent in my little pitch idea for something else, not knowing what was going on and everything fell apart and DC moved to, to LA and they announced the new 52. And finally, you know, uh, I think we were about a year and a half out and I asked uh, the Vertigo folks like, Hey, you know, what, what's the plan with my book? And they had been saying, you know, it's been budgeted for it, So it's still coming out. Mm-hmm. And finally they admitted like, look, we're not, we're not putting it out. And, we had a little bit of um, like tense negotiations to get the rights back. And mm-hmm. I, but I, luckily I did. And then I was just like very trigger shy. I just did not want to give this thing to anybody. Cause mm-hmm. I was in this funny situation where, you know, DC vertigo slash Warner brothers owned the rights to my life now. <laughs> and I thought like, man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be one of those stories that if people tell, like, you know, hey, this corporation owned Mike's entire life. Uh, but they were fair and they were cool about it. So um, I just sat on the damn thing for probably about 10 years. 
I, I would show it every so often, like very reluctantly to agents and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, figuring that if I did pitch this book, I should probably have an agent in my corner. Um, and the, and the, the bookstore market with agents is very, I mean, I was actually told the book looked too good. So I came full circle from not being able to get gigs because I wasn't good enough to like not being able to get gigs because the, the, the art was too good. Um, but uh, Jerry Dugan, who was the writer on Deadpool with me for the five and a half years we were on it, um, was friends with a guy named Bryce Carlson at Boom. And he's like, you know, this guy's really great. You should talk to him and show him your book, uh, which I reluctantly did and had a conversation probably that same week with Bryce. And he absolutely got it, like, sort of set my mind at ease in terms of what might happen with this thing. And, and I just went with it. And they've been great ever since. So I never, I never um, intended to do an autobio book, mm-hmm. sort of the point of the story. And up until the last minute, I mean, up until the week it was coming out, I was literally in my studio, like, uh, dreading the release date, sort of thinking, like, I wonder if I could... I got the rights back once. I wonder if I could pull this book out oh, before boy. you release it in bookstores. Because <laughs> I'd never done anything this revealing before. I'd, I'd never been brave with my work uh, in this way. So I was scared shitless. I really didn't want it out there. I mean, even today, there's a little bit of me that, like, I keep getting letters from fans or tweets or Instagram mm-hmm. messages saying how much they love the book. And I'm, I'm really grateful but there's still like a twinge of panic going like jesus christ these people know all the dirty secrets (laughs) sure so yeah that's a long answer to say that basically i did not want to put this book out well you know let me ask you i I mean the book originally was supposed to come out in in may so you you got a little bit of a reprieve there i did you know i did you know for for terrible reasons of course right but, right sure. you know when you heard okay you know we have to delay the book you know were you like was that a sigh of you know relief yeah oh dude sure <laughs> I, absolutely i was i remember thinking that's actually when i started sort of concocting this fantasy that you know i wonder if i could talk them into giving me the rights back and not doing the book without being a, an ass about it and i knew obviously that was just me being fearful and stupid and i think um it was also i I started to look at it the other way where um this was a sign that i needed to do a book like this um this that quote from david bowie where you know creatively you should feel like you're in the deep end of the pool and your feet are just barely touching the bottom and then you know you're sort of pushing your art forward um i knew that this book was scaring me to death so i probably needed to put it out especially with um, I got into comics as a cartoonist, right? A person who writes and draws their stories. And I've gotten, I've never stopped doing that. I've always used the creator owned, I'm sorry, the work for hire gigs to fund the creator owned books, sure. right? Like I did a little horror comic on the side called Lost by Monday last year. Like every year I, ha- I try to plan at least one independent comics project or art book or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- this one was uh, like everybody still is essentially just thinking of me as a Marvel guy, and this was this book is gonna probably push the needle in the other direction and remind people that like oh yeah this guy was always a cartoonist he just happens to hire be able to hire, hire himself out uh, mm-hmm. to illustrate other people's stories but that was never my plan I, I was always 
I always wanted to be more like Will Eisner than Jack Kirby, you know? Okay. Uh, yeah. Not that I don't respect Jack Kirby immensely, uh, but, you know, that's sort of where I was mentally. Yeah. So it there is a point towards the end of the book where there's a page and then a blackout and then you you know that was the where you say sort of that that was the original ending yeah so yeah. i assume so was that the ending of the vertigo draft right, and you right. tacked the you added the rest on when you came back to the book exactly yeah so the original ending is that is that me and the kids drawing with chalk on a sidewalks thing mm-hmm. um and the, it was supposed to be sort of a a, a hint at what would be next, right? The, I had been sort of beating this metaphor that uh, my mother was both from an island or though technically Puerto Rico is an archipelago, um, but she's both from an island and created an island of herself. And so I wanted to have like a visual uh, metaphor for that at the end. And it was kind of hopeful, uh, but it wasn't meant to be like an ending per se. And then, mm-hmm. you know, life happened, 10 years happened. And when we started talking with me and the boom folks, um, uh, Sierra Hahn was my editor and, uh, uh Alison Grawan, Granowitz, sorry. Um, and, and they felt pretty strongly that like I should add more material. And at first I was reluctant, actually that, and I, I should change the title. The original title was St. Michael's promise, uh, which it, it's, it's in the book. There's a reference to that. Yeah. Um, and I was very reluctant to do both. I was like, ah, I mean, I can maybe add more material, but like, cause there are a lot, there's lots of things to address, but I don't want to change the title. And, uh, you know, they convinced me that it would be wise, right? Cause it, it sounds like a religious book, which it is not. <laughs> and there could be copyright issues. Uh, so we went, we went with the new title and they talked me into changing or adding material. And I realized like I needed to address that ending in a way that wasn't like uh, a fake out, right? Like, oh, look, this was a cute ending, but now you're gonna, whatever. I didn't wanna expound on that, but I, I wanted to sort of address the fact that there's been 10 years from that, you know, page 128 to page 129. Mm-hmm. So uh, I added those three chapters and the very last chapter with the photos uh, was sort of meant to be like those after credit scenes you see in movies that are always about real people, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe kind of a tired trope, but I always like seeing what the actual people in the movies uh, look like and, and what their loved ones look like. And so I knew I wanted to add a chapter where I touched on a couple things. So number one was how I, I could only make this book because my mother passed away. If she'd have been around, she would have killed me <laughs> mm-hmm. for telling any of this stuff. And I needed to address how that's bugged me ever since. There's a part of me that feels like um, I'm uh, telling her secrets and that would, that would really upset her if she knew it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I added the, the first of the three new chapters. The next one was to address having avoided going to Puerto Rico and why that is. And, and the obsession of you know, producing more and more work and that last chapter was sort of to drive it home that these are real people, that none of it's black and white. There's not a villain, even though it's thing, this thing is drawn in a comic book format. And I'm sort of known for being a superhero guy at the moment. Um, and I felt like that, I, I was grateful to the boom folks for pushing me to do a little more content because it really needed it. I think it's hard to imagine us releasing this book as is 
it, that that original ending would have felt dishonest in some way, you know. Um, it's as we're recording this book's been out for about a week. Uh, you know, how has <clears throat> has the reception been? You know, if you had uh, fans reaching out, maybe other creators, uh, you know, to kind of yeah. cheer, cheer you on, or or, <clears throat> or, or or you know, anything like that. Yeah, we had a weird rollout. Uh, so it's been in comic shops for, I guess, it'll be a week Wednesday. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had been in bookstores since July 21st because of the diamond shutdown. Yes. So yes. we had this weird period where I had to talk about this book, like both being out and not out at the same time. You know <laughs> Schrodinger's what I mean? graphic novel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you stole um, the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And, um, and and there was a part of me too that was like, at the risk of sales, was sort of telling people like, look, if you must buy it, you know, by all means buy it online. But if you can wait, I'd rather you did that just because comic shops need it. Sure, um, sure. Because they have been hugely supportive. So before I get the creators, I want to you know really shout out the 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 comic shop folks that that have reached out to me because this. From the beginning, I felt like this was a book that would do better in the bookstore market just just because, right? Like, I know that comic shops would support it, um, but it's not their bread and butter, right? A big $25 hardcover book is not what they're uh, looking for every Wednesday, or rather what, what comic fans are traditionally looking for every Wednesday. Right. Um, but I've been surprised by, by comic shops reaching out to me going, uh, like, just bonkers with how strongly they feel about the book and you know one uh, a buddy of mine has two shops here in pa and he bought 20 copies and he has two stores so he bought 20 for each store and this is like these guys just coming off of a shutdown mm-hmm. businesses and back to where it was but he's like i genuinely feel like this book is important and i want everybody to read it and that's insane for me because it's not i mean everybody's always very kind to me about my work but this mm-hmm. is a, at a different weird level like I've had uh, tons of comic creator friends that are, you know, I would share the PDF with them just to, just to be fun, just to talk about it, just to talk comics. Mm-hmm. And uh, was surprised to see how many of them just went publicly and like, like praised it in a way that didn't feel like, hey, this is my buddy, you should like his book. And it's been really, really amazing, especially from people you respect to death, right? So, um, and then just, the bookstore market, uh, it, that reaction has been strange too, because you don't expect, I don't expect like as a, I, you know, I mentioned dealing with agents sure, and they tend to sort of look, I, don't, I shouldn't say they look down at us, but I think there's a sense of like, there's the comics market and the book market and that we don't necessarily fit together, although it doesn't quite make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bookstore people that have checked this out have reached out in a way that's been really surprising. Like I got invited to the Brooklyn book festival, which was like, I don't know how familiar you are. This is one of the bigger book festivals. That's like kind of a big deal to get invited to. And I was, I was genuinely in shock. And then the American library association reviewed the book and that's a huge deal. Yeah. Um, So this is just one of those weird things for me where I'm not, I don't know how to react to all the, the kindness. Like it's, it's, I feel like thank you isn't 
enough, you know, like the way people are, because I'm getting these, these letters from people who are, they'll either say, Hey man, this was, this kind of hurt and, and, and messed me up to read because it, it hit on some things in a way that felt really authentic that I had to go through. Mm-hmm. Or they'll say, I didn't have to go through this kind of stuff, but the pain is universal. And that was, you know, that was a tough thing to go through. Um, I was surprised by how many people said it was difficult to read because I actually watered it down a good bit. <laughs> like oh, I, I said, yeah, I mean, with Vertigo, I said early on, like, I don't want to do a tell-all mm-hmm. because there's still a lot of people out there that uh, might be upset or, mm-hmm. or I, don't, I just don't want to hurt people's feelings needlessly. Sure. So there's a good bit in there that I could have, you know, made the thing much more sensational, uh, but it would have felt wrong. Mm-hmm. So I guess for me, it's a different book because I, I'm, um, I'm I, I see it and go, yeah, that's an intense scene, but here's why it would have been worse. I, I always have the worst version in my head. I have the Tarantino cut in my head, I guess. <laughs> and, and everybody else has the Disney version. <laughs> Maybe Disney's too, not the right thing, but you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, were there other uh, graphic novel memoirs, uh, you know, maybe that, you know, in the course of, of putting the book together, you look to for an inspiration or, or you know, rereading uh, similar material to kind of get a feel for how you wanted to tell your story at any point? I, I really didn't. I, this is the weird thing about this, this for me is that I, it's not my bag in terms of comics like it's not I, I read lots of indie comics but autobio comics were never really my thing mm-hmm. um so no I, I i can't now i did read obviously i mentioned the brief and wondrous life of oscar Wilde, yeah. mm-hmm. and that i read and that influenced this book uh in a way that is sort of a direct like i read that book and i was like that felt so close to the voice that I had in my head for how I would tell a story if, like this if I if I had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously, you know, you talk to family, you, did, you know, you're, you're kind of researching your history through all this. But, you know, when you finally sit down at the table and you're drawing, you know, what kind of what kind of state are you in kind of going through a lot of that stuff again? Obviously, yeah. you know, to the reader, this project feels very uh, cathartic, you know. Do you reach a point where, you know, you are compartmentalizing and it's, you know, it, you're, you're just drawing or, right. you know, are there a couple of like, you know, tear stained bristle boards somewhere or yeah. something? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Um, people will often assume that it's been cathartic and I've, the first couple of times uh, mm-hmm. I was asked, I, I was like, absolutely not. Like, what do you, like, are you, you can't, like, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around uh, folks feeling that way because I'm looking at it from the inside. Sure. And then you'd see their reaction. I realized, like, um, it bothered them. And I think, I think I've come to realize that um, folks, they read this material and it's hard to get through but you're looking for like the, the silver lining and the silver lining is like, well, he must feel better now that he got it out. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, and I always feel like I'm letting them down by saying like, I, I really did not feel a sense of catharsis at all. Like this thing mm-hmm. was hard from beginning to end. I hated every minute of working on it. 
I hated, I mean, not that I, that I hate my, the work itself, because I, sure. I love my job, but I hated doing this particular book quite a bit. And part of it was, um, you know, I, I tend to, to research things pretty heavily to the point where, you know, maybe it's a little too much. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, what I was drawing a book called Queen Country years ago. And my editor at the time, uh, one of the editors, Jamie Rich, made fun of me because I was trying to track down. There was a scene where a bird was supposed to be singing and waking up uh, Tara Chase, who's passed out in her car in some park. Mm. And it was a particular, I was trying to find a particular kind of songbird that was uh, uh, native to England that actually sang. And he's <laughs> like, dude, just draw a bird. Shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... I have a tendency to, to want to get the stuff right after, mm -hmm. you know, early on in my career, I would just like, I was a little fast and loose and screwed some stuff up. And, but now, you know, with this book, I found like the more I researched, the more I sort of, it became a little too real. And I was just, I was getting more and more unhappy with mm -hmm. working on it. Um, and I think what it is too, is that, you know, being sort of a visual thinker, Working on a script was rough, but it, it felt detached. But when I'm having to draw the thing, uh, you sort of have to be there and you're, you're imagining the, the pages and the panels and the people. And it just, there were times when it was, it was very difficult to get through. There were very, uh, there were a lot of nights where I just felt like, why the hell am I doing this to myself? Why am I doing this book? Um, yeah, it's, it's just been a, a really, it wasn't a healthy book to me, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and I, I wish that there was a better answer to this and I could say, you know, I got on the other end and I feel better about it. Um, but it, it, it's still tough. It's, it's still a lot of unresolved stuff. Sure. You know, even in the last, since you know, we mentioned this thing being finished at Vertigo and then making its way here, mm -hmm. you know, a handful of people have passed away since then. You know, uh, so it's, it, it's, it was a tough, it was definitely a tough bit of business to get through. There's not necessarily a question in here, but oh, okay. I just have to, to, to call out um, the, the beginning of the book. You, and you mentioned it, the, the whole sort of genesis was you mentioning that you'd had a curse placed on you and there was yeah. the shoe. And then that becomes very, it comes back and it becomes very evident in, in the scene with your daughter in the hospital. Yeah, but yeah. also you drew it in, in the scene in the waiting room when you're waiting yeah for the coroner when your mother passed and right. that was just such a but for want of a better analogy it is like the world's most morbid game of where's waldo yeah <laughs> yeah for that that shoot a pop yeah up it, it, there's there's definitely a lot of i mean that's the sort of storyteller telling that i'm i'm most fond of right because uh, i rather i mean look if it were up to me i would use very little dialogue or text um, and I would just do everything through that kind of visual storytelling. So the shoe thing, um, it was something I wanted to, to have show up. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of both a memento mori and uh, uh, sort of a specter of both, you know, her old, my mother's old beliefs and all the sort of darkness that, that she, was, she had lived through. Um, so I, I definitely wanted to, to use that as a way of showing um, 
how you sort of inherit some of those beliefs. And, and even if, if you're not like, I never was a, a practitioner of Santeri in the way that she believed. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying it's a negative thing. I want to make that really, really clear because there's a lot of people that uh, this is a very important part of their lives. Sure. But I just, it was not a thing that was ever um, a belief of mine. But with that said, you can't help but inherit some of that stuff with them. So there's always that part of me that when things get really bad, uh, make me wonder like, hey, did this curse not actually, like, did, was it really a thing? And this thing sort of, sort of follow me. Uh, and then my kids are now inheriting it. Um, you know, we've, we've still lived a pretty charmed life in, in comparison to my mother. But when things go bad, they tend to go really bad. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's definitely that that thing is always the 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 metaphor for like, you know, that you're you're always a little scared to get too happy. Um, mm-hmm. because you're afraid some something's gonna take it away, you know, and that, that thing's always there in the back of your head or you know, literally sitting on a windowsill or something in the in the scene to mm-hmm. show that feeling in some way. I'm glad you caught that though. Good eye. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I haven't actually told anybody that. I haven't actually said, hey, go look for the shoe. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some scenes where it's explicit. I say, hey, the shoe's there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, th- I snuck it into a couple scenes wondering if anybody would catch it. Uh, I love Easter eggs, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, Deadpool's so full of Easter eggs. It's like <laughs> one of these days we'll have to make a big like omnibus with all the stuff that I snuck into it. <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous um did did making the book you know change your relationships with your with your family at all yeah i think i think with my sister um you know we're about 15 years apart mm-hmm. and she'd also had an intensely difficult life yeah. and uh, in some ways you know her experiences with with our mother was probably worse than mine with her being gay mm-hmm. um and i touch on that in the book so she she's had it really rough um you know the beating and everything was all an issue with her uh you know she was she told me how she you know would fail gym class because she would refuse to change because she knew she had bruises on her and things like that so Mm -hmm. uh i think we didn't really grow up together you know by the time i was old enough to, to to really have connected with her she was long gone and living her life and I don't blame her for not being in our lives more um it's a it's an ugly thing like it's bad enough I think for you know just living going through the world as like uh, uh like a, a a gay woman and it's 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 that much worse I think when like you don't have a soft place to land and sure. the the woman that you're sort of looking for uh, for some sort of protection and guidance is like telling you you're you're you know you're just no good so but it was all kind of uh uh i understood all these things sort of in an intellectual way we had never really connected and so um while working on the book and also after i had kids we sort of reconnected and having to talk some of the things out um made me realize that we had essentially these mirrored ex- experiences that we never talked about it was just the same thing happening in this weird loop and uh had maybe we'd been younger or rather had we been closer in age sure um 
perhaps we would have had like a shared experience, but instead we sort of both suffered separately, all the same things. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually bringing it out into, I mean, she was, when she finally read the book and said she had, she liked it, that's actually when I, I remember breathing kind of a, a breath of relief finally, because I remember thinking, I'm, I'm letting too much out. I can't do this. And then I, would, I, I sort of secretly feared that she would hate the book. Mm-hmm. And so when she, when she liked it, I felt like, okay, whatever else happens, I, I, I can deal with because she, uh, she gets it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was, I mean, we had discussions and because she's so much older than me, uh, lots of these people I don't know that are in the story uh, that I had to hear about from her. And uh, so in some ways I got to connect with sort of the history of some of those family members, even if I didn't get to necessarily meet them. Um, you know, having uh, great grandparents that were uh, very heavily in Santeria and in a, in a, in a positive way, uh, you know, and just sort of the, like the, the, there's a certain, belonging that these folks all had that I'm sort of envious of. So there's a, there's a panel or two of you in the book, uh, you know, dab, dabbling in graffiti. Uh, how, how deep into that culture did you get? Pretty deep. I was, in fact, um, if there's a sequel to this mm-hmm. book, it's going to be about the one scene. There's literally one panel where I'm, I'm, I'm painting on a wall and you see a police mm-hmm. car pull up. Uh, I'd like to do the sequel about that night. Mm. Um, And so, I mean, I wasn't, you know, being in Pennsylvania, I wasn't writing on trains, although people would write on, on uh, freight cars and stuff. Yeah. Um, But I was, you know, I was going out at night, you know, probably doing stuff I shouldn't have been doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it felt like uh, an early form of what I'm doing now, though I recognize it, there's a, you know, you're being a vandal, which some people get annoyed with, but it was essentially like drawing and hoping to find an audience to, 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 to make it mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that you can create art in a vacuum. I, I mean, you can just for your own sake, for your own happiness. I don't know that I can do it in a vacuum where I don't like mm-hmm. dump the stuff out there and see how, how the world receives it. So that was sort of an early version of like distributing my work to people. And I, if I wasn't going out in the middle of the night to paint, uh, I was buying big sheets of plywood and like using that as like an impromptu, you know, like, like practicing thing and hmm. drawing, uh, uh, painting big, you know, movable murals. I, I, I wonder sometimes where the hell those things all got to, because I must have done <laughs> a half dozen or, or more of those ones on, on pieces of plywood. Mm-hmm. Um, Anything I ever painted on walls got covered over usually within a few weeks. So there's no, there's no uh, evidence of, of that life. But um, I don't know. I probably, there's always a, an element to that in my work. I mean, it was always that combination of pictures and words mm-hmm. that feels like a direct connection from graffiti to comics. And even in my sketchbooks, they, they, there's always some scribbled words or something in the, in the in the margins or right out mm-hmm. on top of the drawings. So it was, it was definitely a first love, uh, probably even before comics, because it was the thing I saw before I saw comics. You always saw people writing their names or writing a, their little gang names or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, it was it was it was important to me for sure to do that well as a kid. I used to earn money with it, actually. In school, I would like I would write your name for fifty cents in your like a notebook or whatever, and then for another fifty cents, I'd draw a character, and I'd like on the way home stop at the bodega and eat like you know tasty cakes and quarter waters and stuff. Like <laughs> I never saved any of the money I made, but yeah, it was like you know early on, it was like it gave me some weird sense of worth being able to draw and. The first thing I can remember drawing was graffiti. I, I mean, the way you kind of structured structured it, you know, get, getting quarters for, for food and doing like, you know, names and sketch. I mean, that's the, listen, that's, that's convention commissions right there. It that's absolutely what absolutely is. <laughs> You're right, dude. It absolutely is. And then, you know, staying up late at night to finish a piece is like training for a freelance life, you know, drawing comics. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, did you go to art school specifically for comics or did you know what kind of art you wanted to do at that point? I, I did go to art school. I never took a comics class. I, I, in fact, um, there was only one illustration class at my school. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to take more than one class, you just took the same class again. <laughs> That's what the guy, Dave Noyes, that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, the school I went to was primarily a, a fine arts school. It's, okay. uh, at the time, so this was Tyler School of Art. And at the time, it was like in the top five in the country for painting, I believe. Oh, wow. And so you get this like kind of snotty mentality and people throw around the term like Ivy League of Art Schools and this kind of stuff, which I was like, I was a poor kid and I didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if we had eight art professors, seven of them were from, I think six of them were from Yale because we had a weird connection. There was like a summer program where we were sort of a feeder to hmm. Yale. Uh, one was from Harvard and literally I think just one uh, was not an Ivy League school uh, person. So it was very heady, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a very like fine art centric painting school. And so I thought I was gonna learn to, to you know, paint, be classically trained and bring that over into comics. Uh, and then Alex Ross came out and I thought, well, hell. Yeah, <laughs> that. So I sort of went the other way and I started like my early comics were all um, like sort of manga inspired before that was really a thing. Like Hysteria okay. had, you know, it was all hand cut zip tone and I would even use Japanese sound effects, not even being 100 percent sure what they meant, you know, like um, and I got really, really cartoony. I, you know, I got obsessed with folks like Will Eisner and. So I went the opposite direction. You'd see me painting. Um, I, I, I was always, ha- I always had this weird disjointed sense to my work, right? So I'd be at art school doing realistic oil paintings in sort of this classical tradition. And then coming home on the weekends and doing samples to send the Marvel in sort of a superhero style. And then uh, working on my own books that look like this weird combination of, of graffiti and cartoons and manga. Um, which is still uh, an issue to this day. I think I'm sort of all over the place visually because of that training in art school and because of all the weird interests I had. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, coming into a a fine arts program from like, you know, my only exposures to art were high school art classes and graffiti and comics. Mm -hmm. It was definitely like a steep learning curve. (laughs) Like, you know, you you went, you got into this program where everybody could, you know, mention a favorite painter and argue about who was better. And, you know, like 
I didn't know any of these people. I didn't know any of these painters. I had never taken an art history class. Like it, it was, it was definitely a weird culture shock going there, but mm-hmm. never took an illustration or comics class, all self-taught when it comes to comics, cool. which is, I think partly um, maybe good. Uh, Cause I got to figure out what I thought worked based mm-hmm. on other people's work. But I had the structure of like classical drawing to, you know, dictate how I was going to build the comics. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Um, Tyler is out of uh, Temple, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Temple. It's it's weird that Tyler was such. A, now I think it's fallen. I don't think it's in the top five anymore. Um, but it's still it's still pretty well regarded. And they've moved it. When I was there, it was at the far end of North Philadelphia, like in Sheltonham, mm-hmm. or rather Elkins Park. Uh, on mm-hmm. the other side of Shellenham Avenue. And I think they've they've consolidated since and moved everything to main campus. I actually mm-hmm. went to speak a couple years back. It was it's it's still it's still a cool place. It's still super vibrant. Um but I'd be lying if I, you know, I was I, I kind of missed the old campus. Sure. Yeah. I uh, I got my <clears> master's <throat> in journalism at Temple. That's why I Oh, uh, right on. I, there yeah. you go. Temple Owls. There you go. <laughs> now you you've because you've moved back and forth between you know Pennsylvania and New York in your life. I do have to ask, where do your sports loyalties lie? If you have, oh boy, it's it's even more complicated than than that, dude. Because of where <laughs> I am, um, we are you know so we're about forty five minutes, give or take, from Baltimore. Okay, you can get there uh-huh. faster if you want it, uh-huh. and then we're in Central PA. So there's this like you could be standing in line with a guy that's wearing an Eagles jersey mm-hmm. a Ravens jersey or a Steelers jersey. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. a weird place. Uh, and then never mind that like, uh, uh, the, you know, the baseball stuff is all over the place. So yeah, I'm not a big sports guy, although I did work uh, for the 76ers many years ago. So I, there's still, I still have a soft spot for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I did a lot of like advertising art and stuff when Iverson was there. Oh wow! It was, uh, it was a weird experience. Like when when we first started working together, uh, I got to visit the the offices, mm-hmm. and like I'm not a tall guy. I'm very short. I'm about five six, and like I walk into this place, and all the doorways are about two feet taller than what I think they should be. And I can't. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is going on? And it took me a minute to realize. Oh wait a minute, this place is not built for normal people. <laughs> and then they they take me to this boardroom. I swear to Pete, like this chair must have been as tall as I was. Like I remember sitting in it <laughs> and the tables like coming up to here and I'm like having to sit with my elbows on it like this. And I'm sitting next to uh, Charles Barkley sneakers, which are about two feet long. <laughs> and it was just the weirdest damn experience. Cause like, like I said, I'm not a big guy, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't generally feel small. But you go to visit the, the the corporate offices there where, you know, these guys, these giants are walking around and it's like a whole nother world, man. And you also, it made me realize like how much it must suck, you know, like for them to be in our world, right? Where like they can't fit in cars and they can't like yeah. bump. Where the furniture is not adapted to their uh, <laughs> yeah. seven foot height. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Um, so uh, over the course of the book, your hair changes a lot. Oh my like god! You've got so everything from like a crew cut to like a shaggy do yeah. when you're a kid. At one point, you've got this glorious '90s mullet. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and I point this out uh, obviously as a man who sadly had to embrace baldness before oh, he turned sorry. forty. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> um, man, what's your hair care secret? 
<laughs> oh my god it's just genetics man it's just i, I i'm not i don't i don't do much to take care of it the hair thing is funny because uh, a good friend of mine alejandro Albona, who's a uh, a puerto rican writer and mm-hmm. uh and comics editor he like he like literally screen captured a bunch of the hairstyles just to make fun of me online <laughs> and um you know part of my thinking was that that I was going to uh, use it to tell time because mm-hmm. I'm the only constant throughout the story and it's not linear, right? So right. we go from past to present very often. And I didn't want to use the title tropes of like, oh, the flashbacks are done in a different color or whatever goofy thing like that. So I thought the only constant is me and the easiest way to tell the time frame is just to change the hair and the clothing. Mm-hmm. The other thing was I was really self-conscious about like, like not wanting to try to make myself look cool mm-hmm. in the thing. Like I really didn't want, it made me really uncomfortable to be drawing myself over and over and over. So like there are scenes where I remember thinking like, I wonder if I could make this look, make me look goofier here. You know what I mean? Like just to push it so that I don't get accused of doing some vanity thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so I just thought, like, I'm just going to show all the ugly truth of, like, the goofy hairstyles that we had, you know, growing up, man. Like, yeah. um, Alejandro pointed out the one where I had the shag with the lines carved into the side of my head. <laughs> but, you know, that's how it was, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we all lived through the 90s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, like, in hip-hop kind of, and, and, and break dancing culture, the hairstyles would get crazy. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely funny. <clears throat> Um, You're the first guys that, other than the, my friends, to make fun of me. Nobody else has brought it up in a in an interview yet. I'm I'm very impressed. Between that and the shoe, right on. <laughs> you always kind of wonder, like, okay, wait, did they really read the book? <laughs> you guys did. So bravo. Thank you. Uh, always, always nice to to make sure we're we're following the visual continuity. But awesome. I appreciate that. I really do. Uh, so uh, a few weeks ago, we recorded a segment, still unaired. It's coming uh, at the uh, at the Kubert School. And, oh, cool! Yeah, uh, you know, you're you're also an art instructor. You know, I you am. put out uh, an anatomy guidebook earlier this year on Kickstarter. I can see yep. the the skeleton poster hanging behind you. Um, oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how has has that side, the teaching side of your life, kind of evolved the past few months? It's really weird. I so if if. If you mean the last few months because of COVID or just, yep. in, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, dude, it's been weird. Um, I mean, I was never, so when you're in, fi- when you're in a fine arts school, mm-hmm. like everybody's sort of figuring, I'm going to be a fine artist, but until then I'm going to teach. And so everybody wants to get their master's and move on. And I'd mm-hmm. never wanted to teach. Um, in fact, I turned down at least two opportunities to get a free master's if I would have. Uh, you know, stuck around and taught a drawing class, I could get my master's for free. And I thought, ah, the hell with that. I'm going to make comics, which was brilliant. Don't ever, kids, don't ever turn down free master's degrees if you can. <laughs> um, but I had never intended to teach. And so falling into this, um, I, I, I became a teacher because of, I had worked on a film called Hop, doing storyboards. Mm-hmm. probably remember the little Easter Bunny yes. movie. Yes, voiced by Russell Brand. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, it was fun, and I got invited to a, a local school to talk to their visual development kids, and it was great. Uh, 
And then they asked me back for 24 hour comics day. And that was super fun. And while like it was three or four in the morning and we're all like, you know, hopped up on, on Coca-Cola and pizzas and the head of the illustration department says, Hey, you want to teach? And I'm like, sure. Which was crazy. I was like way too busy with freelance work. Um, but it's been a really healthy thing for me. Like mm -hmm. it's forced me to, you know, when you're like, you guys familiar with Banksy? You know, oh, the, sure. The sure. So he has a book where at the end it has this piece where it's this uh, looks like a clip art of like a woman. And she's like, oh, it's so great that you're an artist and you sit around and think about yourself and talk about yourself all the time. And I remember just laughing. It was something like that, I'm paraphrasing, but mm -hmm. that's essentially the gig, right? Like even right now, you guys are being really nice, but it's just like, hey, I'll talk about myself for an hour. <laughs> um, but it's maybe not like, healthy uh as a person mm -hmm. and going to teach and like having to serve these young artists and try to guide them and and knowing how hard it is to make a career with this um has been a good thing for me mentally and i've like despite it's not maybe the, the smartest financial thing to do um i i've continued to do it because the students are like they've made me a better artist uh you know, just, just, and a, probably a better person just in that, like, I have to now invest in these young artists that like, I want to all make it. Mm -hmm. And now I've been doing it long enough that some of them are making it. And I'm just like, I couldn't be prouder. And they'll reach out and thank me. And it's amazing. But the last few months with COVID, mm -hmm. uh, last semester wasn't too bad because we went, just, we just switched off, went to virtual Mm -hmm. And I had a, a group of seniors and it was, you sort of, when they're seniors, you sort of let them do their thing and you just do reviews and, 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 and uh, try to get out of their way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's relatively easy to do. This semester I teach uh, anatomy usually in the fall mm -hmm. and that's a lot harder to do. Uh, you have a model, you have to have very complicated you know, anatomy lectures and there's a lot of drawing involved and showing where things go. So um, we've been doing a lot of prep to try to figure out a safe way to do that. And whether I want to go back at all, frankly, like, you know, there was a part of me, it's like, you know, I've never, I know that I, I, I am way too busy to be teaching and maybe this is the time to just hop out. And uh, it really was up until the last minute where I just thought like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stick it out and see, and just hopefully, uh, you know, stay healthy and everything. And uh, the school I teach at uh, PCAD, the Pennsylvania College of Art and Design, mm -hmm. uh, they've been really like the, the department head, um, her name is uh, Christina. She's, uh, Christina has, she's amazing. Like she actually just designed some commemorative coin or actual coin. So she's basically open to letting me do whatever it is that I need to do to get the class, you know, within the guidance that they have mm -hmm. and keeping it safe. And so, I'm going to be splitting it up between two rooms. So there's no more than six, four to six people per room. So I'll be lecturing twice every day and bouncing back and forth between two classes. And it's just a lot of prep going into keeping everyone safe. Yeah. Um, but you sort of know that it's all for nothing that like, uh, you know, there's going to be a breakout and you're probably going to have to shut down. You know, my, my kid, my oldest kid is in college now. Today was actually her first day. She went cyber. They gave her the option. Mm. Uh, uh, luckily she's at a small like uh, private school and she's studying to be an engineer 
so they can cater to these kids. I mean, I know it's, it's, I feel kind of guilty that we got it so good, but we have a good situation, but she was just starting classes today and he spoke to one of her friends literally day one. And they, and evidently there's already a couple of cases popping up. Oh, boy. So you, you kind of, we're sort of making these plans knowing that there may be all for nothing. Yeah. And we're going to have to try to figure out, I'm going to have to figure out how to teach kids anatomy. Uh, and it sucks because, you know, you, you, the models depend on this stuff for money. Sure. Uh, so I'm always really, that was one of the big uh, uh, factors for me to decide to, to come back is I don't want to put them out of work. They depend on this stuff. Like there's a whole community around these art schools that feeds into sort of bigger economic issues of like just art in general in any city that they're in, right? From the art school stores that service the students to the, 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 you know, restaurants or whatever that are near the art school. So yeah. it's definitely kind of a, a, a scary thing. And I feel, I mean, we've been so lucky in that, like I can do my work from anywhere. And, you know, even during the shutdown with diamond, um, it changed some things at Marvel, but I was still able to, to keep working. And, uh, you know, my skill set is, is, you know, flexible enough that I was able to do a lot of stuff for Marvel, like online classes and stuff like on their YouTube channel and stuff. Nice. Um, but it, you, you are just, we're sort of like, it, it feels like we're sort of juggling this whole time and, and knowing yeah. that like, you know, we're going to, one of us is going to drop a plate at some point. So mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, yeah. So let's, let's, let's change gears a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned Marvel, uh, you, you drew Deadpool for five and a half years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll ask the silly question first. Okay. Could you, could you draw him with your eyes closed at this point? You know, I probably, I probably could, frankly, I have, a, I have like a, a, uh, sort of a signature version of Deadpool that I'll do in, in books. Mm -hmm. And I could probably draw that thing in like four and a half seconds uh, without a pencil, without a, just straight to ink, without hardly looking. So yeah, he's, there's definitely a formula that you sort of develop after drawing a character that long. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you uh, if you do your job right, you sort of get to that formula pretty quick mm -hmm. and try to figure it out so that the style's consistent. Um, but yeah, he's he's a fun guy though too. He's he's, he's fun to draw. Yeah. Um, what do you see as kind of you know are there are there pros and cons to being on a book for that long? I mean, you really don't see, <clears throat> especially artist runs uh, that are that long uh, as much anymore these days, uh, you know, and, and just to be clear as, you know, somebody who's reading comics for a while, I mean, God knows, I mean, I miss that kind of visual consistency yeah, uh, yeah. On, on books. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because it's, it's all the stuff I said I would never do. Right. So um, I actually turned down Deadpool the first time they asked, uh, offered it. Um, I just wasn't, I wasn't actually a fan of the character. Mm -hmm. I didn't know much about him. And uh, it was because of Jordan and just getting to know him that made me realize like, no, I should take this seriously. There's something here. And mm. uh, I ended up breaking all my own personal rules. So I always said I wouldn't stay on a book. If you look at my career before Deadpool, mm -hmm. uh, I never stayed on a book more than 12 issues just because I tended to, to sort of peter out after like 11. I'd start to feel bored. Okay. Um, and I'd been lucky in what I'd been, you know, I'd done a year on Conan with Roy Thomas and uh, a year on uh, the Unmen at Vertigo. And I'd got to do some like, 
I mean, it's funny, we call them long runs, but like a 12 issue run nowadays feels like a long run. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, but like, I, I always thought like, that's, that's the sweet spot for me. So that's what I'm always going to do. Mm-hmm. And working on those first couple issues, there was something there immediately. Like, it's, it's like when you start a new job and like, you immediately dig the, your coworkers and everything just seems to work right. And even like, mm-hmm. e- even like the, the company, like, dynamics seems to make sense and there was just something there that i thought like well let me just ride this out and see what happens and then uh when they eventually asked uh offered the exclusive which again i always told myself i would never sign an exclusive i didn't want to be tied to any one company i wanted to be able to bounce around and do fun stuff um i was already deciding i'm gonna stay on i might as well sign this thing i mean like at the time that i was on deadpool uh i did uh, like an event book for DC, like a Superman related thing. Hmm. Uh, they did a villains month a few years back. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. And I did the uh, cyborg Superman issue hmm. and I did like a little bit of a, of an issue of Superman because behind the scenes, DC was trying to get me like sort of steal me from, from Marvel hmm. and get me to do a, a Superman book. They actually offered me a Superman thing, uh, a green lantern series, which I actually would have been, it would have been fun. Uh, and a couple of other cool things. And I knew that like, if I'm willing to turn those down, it's because I'm genuinely happy and I don't want to mess with it too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I think right before then, I was still doing a, uh, right before Deadpool, uh, I had taken a break from American comics and and, and did a, uh, uh, I was doing a French series for a year. Mm. Uh, and just because I wanted to see what that was like and and they were very cool and fans of my work. So, um, it just, it, it, everything just clicked in a weird way. Like having done the French book for a year, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go back and, you know, <laughs> do some American comics again. <laughs> um, and I loved working in the French market. Don't get me wrong, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it was just a weird like, way the pieces all fell together. I thought like, yeah, I'm going to stick with this thing until it doesn't feel right. And then I'll bail. Mm-hmm. And it, just that that day never came until we sort of you know we're looking at like all the stuff we got to do and jerry and i would talk behind the scenes and you're like you know it can't stay this good forever like something's gotta something bad's gonna <laughs> happen and um you know he started talking about like an exit strategy like hey you know maybe we ought to like you know go out on top like like leave when we're still popular and people want us on the book but we can sort of instead of being forced to end it in a funny way, uh, you know, end it the way we think we should do it. Mm-hmm. I was down. I was, I, I sort of let Jerry be the captain and just like, you tell me where to go, which way to run. And, and you toss the pass and I'll catch it. Like whatever you want to do is fine with me. Um, and he was right the whole time. I think he did some special stuff on Deadpool. I think it's a shame, especially I should probably not, uh, tout other people's books but like he did a series uh one of the storylines with uh Declan Shalvey that I yeah. think he should have won an Eisner for frankly like this the writing on that was impeccable I mean there's a moment in there where like I damn near teared up uh and it's a Deadpool book you know Jerry <laughs> was doing some special some special stuff for sure and uh, I'm I'm super proud of the run on that like you know I I'm glad I'm glad I stuck around I'm glad it, the five and a half years like just passed by faster than I realized. Um, you know, and I got to revisit recent, recently. I did the, the 
Marvel's doing the end. Uh, that, yeah. So I did Deadpool the end with uh, uh, Joe, which I had never done any any books with him. So it's it's abs- I, I miss him sometimes. Frankly, um, mm-hmm. it was the right time to go. But yeah, I, it's it's definitely a highlight of my career. Uh, and I was definitely a big uh, fan of that run and the work that you and Jerry and, and you know, Brian Posey and Scott Koblish, all those guys. Yeah, Scott's, Scott was like the unsung here. I mean, I always felt that we couldn't – like that team, I just don't know how you recreate that. Like everybody was working, doing their best work, getting along, everybody. There was no like crazy ego of someone pissed off that they weren't like a bigger deal. Everybody was – it just was working beautifully. And – I'm just, I don't know. That team was amazing. I don't know that we'll ever have, I mean, I've gotten to work with some amazing people. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. that was just a weird situation that like, you kind of think like, dad, it'll never, this will never get these, the stars won't align in this way again. It's a bummer, but you know, we'll see. Maybe they will. <laughs> what are you, uh, what are you reading now? Reading. Uh, not a lot of comic stuff, unfortunately. Like I, I'm in a weird place where, uh, as, as every year goes by, I read fewer and fewer comics, which is a drag because there's so much of the work eating up my time. Sure. sure. Um, you know, I, I realized I have today, actually, I, I found a stack of comics from like, I don't know, the last three months of buying comics and then, uh, stacking them up in a corner and they're still sitting there unread, unfortunately. But um, I was still reading uh, a lot of Rick Remender stuff. Rick's a good friend of mine. Mm. So I had like Deadly Class and stuff in there. Um, uh, Stray Bullets is still, that's been a favorite of mine forever. Uh, but yeah, not a ton of stuff, unfortunately. Not not comic stuff. It's been like, I, I think it's a little like like when I worked in restaurants, right? And mm-hmm. when I was a kid and it was one of those things where you're cooking for eight hours or whatever and you come home and like, you end up eating like a mustard and cracker sandwich or something. Cause you just don't want to cook. Not one more thing. Right. So um, I end up just not reading enough comics. It's a, it's kind of a bummer. I was thinking about it actually recently because um, I think between not going to conventions and this stuff, I'm feeling weirdly detached. Yeah. And I was, I, I'd never went to conventions really. So I, I, I there's a part of me that feels like uh, uh, I, I need to reinvest in the art form a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and that probably sounds odd for a person who, you know, makes comics for 10 hours a day. Um, but I'm just not, I'm, I'm losing myself in the work and uh, I'm becoming like, like the fan part of it. The magic is sort of dwindling and I need to remind myself why I got into this in the first place, you know? So if you got any recommendations, let me know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, Mike, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. As we're uh, wrapping up, how can people uh, follow what you're doing and support your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just look me up online. I, I'm on all the social media stuff. Um, I, I'm really active on Instagram. I'm really active on Twitter. The one thing that uh, is is a primary focus of mine right now is my Patreon. So mm-hmm. patreon.com, Mike Hawthorne Art. I'm sort of using it as a way to get back. I sort of mentioned feeling like I'm getting out of the fan mentality. Uh, and I've been using my men- my Patreon to sort of get back to basics. I started, you know, making zines again and cool. you know, like actual print and digital ones. And 
uh, live streaming and all that kind of stuff through there. So look me up there. Awesome. It's less than a comic. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dude, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And sorry for the technical difficulties, but you guys have been great. I appreciate everything. Thank you. Thank no you. Worries. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files media empire, meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones and Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. WMQA!